Okay, five months before Beethoven was born, in other words. In Bologna, Italy, two of the world's greatest music collectors met for the first and only time. One was Charles Burney, the English man of letters, promoter of London concert life, at this time gathering material for one of the first great general histories of music. Burney was on his grand tour with eyes open and notebook in hand, busy providing posterity with one of our most useful eyewitness accounts of early Italian music life. Having previously read much of the splendors of Italian opera, Burney went expecting to be overwhelmed, and predictably he was not disappointed. His host in Bologna was Giovanni Battista Martini, composer, theorist, teacher, organist, and another collector. Padre Martini's career is remarkably similar to that of the early great Florentine bibliophile uh, Maliabecchi. Neither man ever traveled more than a few miles from his native city of Florence, but their fame traveled if they didn't. Legend has it that scholars in Constantinople wrote to Maliabecchi, uh, learning about books on their own shelves at home. And similarly, musicians from the corners of Europe uh, called on Martini for a wide range of musical advice. Those who, could, those who could manage it visited him, performers, composers, and the like. Some stayed several years for lessons. Others, like Bernie, could only manage a few days. All of them came away profoundly impressed. One man called Martini the great dictator of classical music. Like Bernie, Martini was working on a general history of music of which the first volume devoted to the Greeks had already appeared. But Bernie observed, the good father Martini is far advanced in years and is of infirm constitution, having a very bad cough, swelling legs, and a sickly countenance, so that there is reason to fear that he will hardly have life and health sufficient to complete his learned, ingenious, and extensive project. In point of fact, Bernie was right for the wrong reason. Old Martini had 14 years left in him, although he never did get the book finished. He never did get beyond the Greeks on his history. The two men, though, hit it off perfectly. Bernie noted in his diary, upon so short an acquaintance, I have never liked any man more, and I felt as little reserve with him after a few hours' conversation as with an old friend or beloved brother. The first meeting was devoted to a comparison of their projected history books. Uh, the Bernie left. Uh, the second was devoted to the collections. Bernie had left his books in London, but he had brought his catalog along. And to read his diary accounts to the various stops for customs, he had already accumulated several trunks of books on the tour, which he was now lugging along with him wherever he went. Martini spent a good deal of time copying out entries from Bernie's catalog and in turn, Martini showed some of his books to Bernie. One can imagine the excited discourse, each man anxious to display his erudition and increase it at the same time, all in that kindly and honest spirit of sharing. The points they scored in their game, Bernie recorded with the verb surprise. I had frequently surprised booksellers on the continent with a list of my own books on the subject of music, for instance, but in my turn, I was now surprised Martini showed me several of his most curious books and manuscripts. Uh, he was surprised at some of my ownings, own, my, the books I owned, and said they were extremely rare, and he took down the titles. The two men met no less than four times over the next eight days. Thanks to Padre Martini, Bernie had an opportunity to attend a Philharmonic concert. Here, Bernie records in his diary, among the rest, who should I meet but the celebrated little German, Mozart? Wolfgang, age 14, was in town with his daddy for what other purpose than to have a few lessons with Padre Martini. 
recalling that he had seen Mozart in London a few years before, Bernie proudly observed, the little man has grown considerably, but he is still a little man. So much for collectors as music critics. Uh, so much for music critics as music critics too anyway, but that's beside the point. After the concert, Bernie stopped to thank Martini at his convent by appointment. He waited for me in his study, it being late and beyond the monastic hours of seeing company. The good padre had uh, prepared some letters of introduction for Bernie. He had copied out some canons which Bernie particularly enjoyed. And Bernie tells us he had looked, out still more, he had looked uh, up still more curious books to show me, of which I took the titles in hopes of meeting with them sometime or other. Thus the two collectors parted company, uh, Bernie to continue his travel to the south and then back to London, where he wrote up his travel diaries, and six years later began to publish his own history book. On his death, uh, some 44 years later, in 1814, uh, Bernie's collection was dispersed at auction, although some of it has gone to the British Museum. Padre Martini lived 14 years longer, but he never, of course, continued to on his music history. His collection, for the most part, uh, uh, was the far greater of the two, and it's today in the city of Bologna intact, preserved as part of the Civic Music Library. Bernie was probably the better scholar, but uh, Martini was far better the collector. Among other things, for instance, later on, uh, he conned Bernie into having a portrait painted by no less a person than Joshua Reynolds and sent to him in Bologna. Uh, Johann Christian Bach uh, got the same treatment and supplied one by Gainsborough. So it's a, it's a nice little act he had going there, the learned padre. Uh, the story of Bernie and Martini must introduce this discussion. For while neither of these collectors was apparently much of a bibliographer, their immediately close working relationship is of the kind that gave birth, as time became ripe, to modern music bibliography. Picking up a lead from our sociologists of science, and most notable among, among them perhaps uh, R.K. Merton here of Columbia, uh, following that lead, I would propose that collecting becomes scholarly as it becomes social. I'll go one step further, in fact, and attempt to trace the rise of modern analytical music bibliography, such as it may be today, and granted that it isn't all that much yet, but trace the rise of this in terms of a succession of close working relationships between various collectors of music. As they delight in their collection, collectors inevitably look at what they've acquired. And as they share their enthusiasm, they ask questions and they compare copies. Collecting thus has to be recognized as first a visual and second a social activity. The delight of the graphic object is essentially to the eyes. Now there may be a perverse tactile joy to be derived, for instance, from the slimy texture of an alligator binding, or from the self-indulgent luxury of a velvet one, or from the splinter-threatening austerity of exposed oaken boards, uh, but the microfilm PR people have the idea right uh, when they espouse their search what, what, for what they call a cuddly microfilm reader. Uh, books, for all their virtues, don't really cuddle. Uh, they appeal to the sight, uh, not to the touch. Similarly, the filigranists studying watermarks may go into ecstasy at the sound of paper. Le papier chant, as they say in France, but even they would agree the song ain't very good. Uh, indeed, it's the eyes that tell us what's exciting, interesting, anecdotal, significant, unusual. And I would propose such are the matters that will catch the attention of collectors, doting, admiring, and or inquisitive. 
These are the people with the mixture of time, curiosity, and unencumbered freedom that comes from both of these, needed to, as we say today, and with apologies, massage the database. Later on, the academics, the professors, and the librarians will come along to codify and clarify, to organize the procedures, establish the methods, uh, and demonstrate the philosophy. In general bibliography, of course, the modern roots can be traced to Henry Bradshaw's conception of a natural history method at Cambridge in the 1880s. The counterparty events in music bibliography are less conspicuous, and of course they come much later. In tracing what in effect amounts to the prehistory, the role of collectors plays what may or may not in fact be a conspicuous part. What is particularly striking, however, and what can be traced back to the Martini-Bernie encounter in 1770 is this social context. Uh, the story of, Ber of uh, excuse me, uh, among the precursors of these two men, uh, there are a number that we should just run past. The Dukes of Braunschweig, who, for instance, who accumulated a good deal of music still beautifully preserved at Wolfenbüttel. Columbus's son, Fernando, also collected music much of it what's left uh, in the Columbina in Seville. Uh, King Joao IV of Portugal had a splendid music library, uh, known today only through his catalog, thanks to the earthquake in Lisbon in 1753. England's greatest early collector was Henry Aldrich, Dean of Christ Church, Oxford, whose library is now intact there. More relevant and interesting things, alas, were to be hoped for from a man named Thomas Britton, a London coal dealer who supported and organized early public concerts in London. Uh, we should be despair, however, that his collecting career was cut uh, rather short, as reports have it, by his death, which apparently was caused by having been frightened to death by a ventriloquist. That's an odd one I've heard. Uh, but at any rate, things pick up from here. From an early date, however, music came to be mostly excluded from the uh, scope of proper libraries. By the end of the 17th century, its collectors were often interested in it as ephemera only. Peeps and Luttrell come to mind. Much of it's in oblong format, and thus it fits badly on the shelf. Much of it was issued for purposes of performance, and hence binding was uh, cumbersome more than strengthening. Around 1700, the publishers of music began liberating themselves from the book trade and used engraved plates rather than movable type. In time, the music dealer became a specialist, just as the bookseller became a specialist, and so he has remained largely to this day. The result is that the music collector is, is in his own corner of the world of bibliophiles, a kind of a strange bird, interesting and often useful, among other strange and interesting, often beautiful birds. Many libraries have shied away from music, partly because musicians are so often unusual among their of a very unusual readership. The situation has grown this way over many years, and even today scholars rummaging through the monasteries of Central Europe look for Haydn autographs and 18th century performance parts, not in that stunningly sensuous Baroque library that one finds, uh, but more often stuffed up in the organ loft or the hayloft. The music collector thus emerges as an oddball in the world of libraries and bibliophiles alike. In the absence of any grolier list, or even of much of any prospects for one, the collector sets out on his own. But working as he does in a lonely world, he looks for peers to confirm his impressions, which may or may not be more imaginative in the absence of guidelines for his perceptions. 
The social context begins to show signs of becoming bibliographical, admittedly in a rather faint way, in the generation or two after Bernie and Martini. The central figure here is one Raphael Giorgi Sevetter, a civil servant employed at the War Office in Vienna, and perhaps for that very reason in need of something interesting and worthwhile to do in life. This he found in his music co collection, today found largely in the State Library in Vienna. Kiesewetter uh, uh, is remarkable for uh, several things. His writings on music history are among the first to show any concern for the exotic and folk music. More relevant to our story were his gregarious activities as something as a, of a successor to our man Thomas Britton. Uh, a sponsor of concerts in his home, an early member of the Gesellschaft für Musikfreunde, and most of all as a sponsor of other scholars and collectors. The better known of these may be his own nephew, the historian A.W. Ambrose, but the more important is his protege at the War Office, another man who was stuck there with a job, Alois Fuchs, in whom the instincts for descriptive and analytical bibliography can mildly be spotted. Fuchs's great love was for the master composers, although in fact their autographs were more, uh, more than their printed editions uh, were what he could afford. He couldn't, uh, he didn't have the money, but he handled, examined, and in time came to be a respected authority who authenticated some of them. Even now, his handwritten notations are to be found on a good many Mozart autographs. A love for the physical document is amply in evidence, even if for our story at least it isn't yet the printed text. And the adjunct instincts of the compiler are seen in a number of published lists that he came out with devoted not only to the great masters, but also to the Kleinmeister, people like Vorzicek and Roeser, whom nobody had heard of, even Vivaldi, who at this time was quite forgotten. To Fuchs, we owe in 1848 a first census of autographs of the master composers, also some indexes to music iconography. The generosity of a great collector is evidenced in the service he provided in copying inaccessible works, also by the dispersal of his own collection through a large number of libraries. The instincts of the gregarious collector are obviously there, along with the delight in the visual object. The next chapter in the prehistory of analytical music bibliography is quite likely to involve a collector at well, as well. And while it's hardly a chapter in its own right, it's a clear sign of the collector who keeps his eyes open for the bibliographical idiosyncrasy. The collector in question is an English composer, arranger, and antiquary, Edward Francis Rambo, whose collection is lampooned in a glorious parody catalog entitled The Catalog of the Extensive Library of Dr. Rainbow, FRS, FSA, ASS, etc. The date is 1862, and the 116 citations include appropriate annotations varying from the easy, easily recognizable howler to the conspicuous in-joke. Here, for instance, we groan at our first ecology song. The way to get the stink out of the Thames is not to put the cause of the stink in it by Mr. Smelly. Uh, significantly, though, almost all of the citations do include statement of format, such as one found in the antiquarian catalogs of the day. What I should like to see as an even greater signal of an open bibliographical eye is entry number two, a, quote, unique Bible made up regardless of expense from 365 scarce editions. The sizes do not correspond, some pages being 48 mo, others folio, all of this put together in one volume. 
the practice being maligned is a subtle one, not in this instance, I believe, of grangerization, but rather one of cannibalization, such as I have reason to think was rather widespread in mid-19th century London book circles. I have, at any rate, seen dozens of service books, Bibles, prayer books, psalters, uh, often several bound together, surviving from the era of the company of stationers patent, in which the hand of a sophisticator is clearly in evidence. Some show careful and clever concealment. Others are grossly executed, admittedly perhaps not to the point of mixing folio and 48 mole pages, but such is the breadth of humor one expects and condones in a good parody. The threads of argument are admittedly thin ones. Whether this kind of example constitutes bibliography, at least it certainly suggests collectors whose eyes are open for bibliographical details. And while we can only conjecture how Rambolt was expected to take the brunt of this humor, quite obviously a social environment of collectors is suggested here. It's one of the understandable ironies of the history of scholarship that disciplines that often grow up together have the greatest trouble talking to each other. Bibliography and modern musicology offer a case in point. Both of them date from the 1890s onward. Both of them found themselves defining their methods and objectives through the first half of the 20th century. The lack of communication could partly be laid to national and linguistic barriers. Bradshaw, Coppinger, Proctor, McCarrow, and Gregg and their disciples were all British or Anglophile Americans. Riemann, Adler, Wolf, and their group were distinctly German, at least up to the 1930s. A second obvious difference is one of subject matter, and the two have a parallel fault in that their preoccupation uh, is with Renaissance matters. It's not so much that Renaissance music books fall between the cracks. The English bibliographers not being generally attracted to the sound of Renaissance music as much and the German uh, musicologists having more basic discoveries to make. Uh, more relevant to the argument is the book-like nature of Renaissance music printing itself. Not until the 18th and 19th century do printed musical documents assume any special identity thanks to the adoption and widespread use of the engraving rather than letterpress printing. As a result of this technological differentiation, music could pr proceed historically in some special directions. Sir Walter Gregg, in one of the famous pronouncements about bibliography being concerned with the physical objects irrespective of their contents, could even go so far as to propose on one occasion as, quote, a bibliographer has no business to know a Bible from a Decameron or a sermon from a Fablio. As we shall see, music collectors, in fact, seem to have gone along with this. It was as they aspired to scholarship, as their work became social, that the problems emerged. Indeed, of course, there could be engraved literary texts like Pine's Horace, and there were many of them, of course. So far as the, so far as the bibliographer is concerned, the most profound characteristic of the engraving process was the relationship between the printing surface and the printing act. Engraved plates are kept around. This is one of their special assets in that it enables publishers to issue very small press runs, in some cases almost comparable to demand publishing today. Comparable practices are, of course, well known in work with literary publishing, standing type being the oldest and the easiest, stereotyping being widespread in the 19th century, lithographic press work coming to the fore in our own day. Now the bibliographical study of documents executed from preservable printing surfaces, uh, if I may introduce this generic concept, has been of some concern for scholars. 
in many ways the trailblazing part of Fredson Bauer's great principles of bibliographical description is the last third concerned with the 19th and 20th centuries in which some of these problems are discussed. The fact that Bowers has been largely overlooked by music bibliographers has several explanations. One of them certainly is a matter of nationality. It's manifest partly in the general unwillingness of continentals to accept in any kind of English scholarship, but there are other substantive considerations as well, having to do with terminology. The classic German conception, for instance, of Ausgabe and Auflage, or the French term tirage, simply do not fit into the accepted edition issue state way of thinking. The cognates don't work, and the hierarchy that we take for granted thus falls to be, thus fails to make much sense across the channel and continental Europe. Add to this the fact that Bowers understandably draws his examples from the literary books he knows, thus excluding music. Finally, his conception of the basic purpose of bibliography in 1950 is somewhat narrower than we probably see it in 1980. The fact remains that it really ought to be possible to make music bibliography into a unified discipline, uh, uh, into the, uh, could merge music bibliography into the unified discipline of general bibliography, but the hard work of doing so still lies ahead us, of us. While these two disciplines were first emerging, meanwhile, a whole tradition of music collectors could delight their eyes in contemplating their collection without using those eyes to ask any serious scholarly questions. Studying the Edwardian music collectors several years ago, for instance, I came to feel it perfectly understandable that the owners could see their collections as sporting delights, for the most part, uh, much as they belonged to the Musical Association and probably the Athenaeum Club as well. These were investments. They thought of understanding the press, the thought of understanding press work was far beneath their dignity, and so was the thought of asking what the odd notation or an accustomed note meant to the composer's intention. This was something for technicians and craftsmen. To be sure, this tradition produced what still remains the best book on music collecting. This is James E. Matthews' little book called The Literature of Music. It's from the end of this period, furthermore, that we meet persons of a deep personal and passionate commitment to their art and to their collecting. Paul Hirsch is probably the outstanding example of this. We also meet among the celebrated speculators, though, Jerome Kern, whose passion for music is suggested by the fact that he seems never to, to have been interested in collecting music at all. The conclusion we must draw is that the early 20th century music collector lacked much of any stimulation toward bibliographical scholarship, or at least any deep commitment to the frontiers of knowledge, at least up until further on into the century. The roots of modern music bibliography began to be seen in the 1920s and in another social community. And what setting could be more appropriate than one of those famous artistic circles in Vienna? Uh, a less famous, but no less passionate counterpart to the ones associated with Schoenberg, Wittgenstein, or Freud. For our purposes, the three protagonists are the giant, are first of all, the giant of the modern analytical school of music theory, Heinrich Schenker, founder and mentor of the group. Second, the enormously wealthy Dutch music lover and collector, Anthony van Hoboken, and third, the Viennese art historian for, who served for a time as his librarian, Otto Erich Deutsch. The story of the three has several anomalous circumstances that need to be understood before this picture fits together. To Schenker the theorist, to begin with, the relationship between musical analysis and documentary evidence is absolutely critical. 
His investigations were directed toward his pantheon of master composers. To him, there were only 10 or 12 of them from Bach through Brahms, and by curious circumstance, most of them were Viennese. In order to understand them, however, one had to probe what went on in the, in the composer's mind, if you will, had to find a kind of a compositional gestalt. And this required the best possible evidence, and even preferably a passionate search for this evidence. Here is where the bibliophile and the analyst fit in. No anti-bibliophile Schenker, no cousin of the new criticism proposing that intellectual content is the end to the exclusion of historical and bibliographical study. At this point, uh, Schenker's wealthy pupil enters the picture. Under Schenker's encouragement, von Hoboken built two great collections, both of them today in the National Library in the Vienna. The original editions themselves are glorious in their own right, all the more so considering their inevitable emphasis on textual variants. Quite understandably, of course, as dealers came to learn of Van Hoboken's interest, not to mention his wealth, textual variants turned up in impressive numbers. Hoboken's bibliographical expertise is considerable, as his vast thematic catalog of Haydn will demonstrate. Uh, and the passion for detail instilled by Schenker is limited only by the fact that there was really no theoretical basis for his work when he was collecting. His second great collection, of course, is the great Photogram Archive in Vienna, the grandfather of New York Public's Toscanini Archive, in which composers' autograph materials scattered through the world are assembled in photocopy for textual study by scholars. The role of Hoboken, at first in supporting the whole Schenker enterprise, and later as bibliophile for the program, has to be recognized in these two dimensions. For a time in the 1920s and 30s, Schenker called on Otto Erich Deutsch, the third person, trained as an art historian and then practicing as a journalist, to serve as a research assistant, librarian, and agent. However, the two men disagreed, and with the Anschluss, Deutsch removed to England. It was then that the tradition of English analytical bibliography first met up with the tradition of German musicology as seen in Deutsch's work. In time now, some of the threads of this development may come to be sorted out as to suggest a fuller picture, but the understanding I get, my preliminary prognosis, is that the impact was not menu monumental in any direction, at least at first. Uh, there are several results that we have to mention. At first, there was an immediate standoff between the two communities, with Deutsch caught in the middle, unable to stir up much interest on either side. Uh, the musicologists weren't all that, in England were not all that much interested in looking at the documents, and the bibliographers weren't that much interested in the music. Uh, eventually, he concluded, unfortunately, that bibliography was an animal unto itself. As a man, he, he of course, was rather lonely and egotist, capable of, of great kindness, but he, with what you would call a curious and slightly perverse mind for the exception, as we will see. Deutsch's view, alas, seems to have held the ascendancy up into the 1950s and 60s. His several writings on music bibliography, the most important of them ironically issued in the library, are treasures of relevant and interesting facts well addressed to major issues, but always with the assumption that music bibliography was a law unto itself. Deutsch's influence in England involves the non-Schenkerian uh, colleagues who worked with and respected him, notable among them, for instance, being the bookseller Cecil Hopkinson, 
and two of the British Museum staff, uh, C.B. Oldman, collector, uh, keeper of printed books, and Alec Hyatt King. All of them were happy to learn from Deutsch, and each of them, in different ways, came to question some of the underpinnings of music bibliography that seemed to be emerging. King and Oldman may be the more respected scholars, but Hopkinson was the more interesting and ultimately the more enigmatic figure. His essential descent from Deutsch involves most particularly that great bugbear of all bibliography, namely terminology. Deutsch could play around with German language subtleties. Uh, he enjoyed this. He, he had the curious and perverse mind for details. He enjoyed distinguishing, for instance, between composers' first editions, posthumous first editions, and pirated first editions. And when it came to state an issue, he could be hopelessly casual. Uh, state was reserved for distinguishing differences, quote, purely external and superficial. Issue replied to, quote, cases of essential textual differences. Uh, now, what does that mean exactly? Uh, uh, another famous example he enjoyed coming up with uh, in bibliography, the principle of the uh, canceled title page, what we call the, uh, what in German is called the Titel Auflage. He had the counterpart to this, what he called the Platen Auflage. Uh, in a standard issue practice, what you do, you tear out the title page, throw it away, and put in a new one. That's the gives you a new issue or a Titel Auflage. He came up with what he called a Platen Auflage, where you tear out the title page, throw away the rest of the music, and splice that to a new edition. He called that a, a Platenauflage. Uh, there is only one that he could find. There are two of them now, but it's, uh, that's no principle of bibliography, please. Uh, at any rate, he, he had this kind of mind for detail. Uh, Hopkinson now could take none of this from Deutsch. He wrestled hard, long, and not terribly successfully against the foe. In his early Berlioz bibliography, he could recognize edition and issue, but state he would not face up to. He called it variant, and this got him in all kinds of strange problems. Later on, he could profess a wish for help and assistance. Uh, he deserved better than he got. Uh, first of all, he owned something called the First Edition Bookshop, which was pretentious and misleading. In London, uh, he was attacked by Richard S. Hill, for his, quote, skin-deep approach to bibliography. Second, at a 1959 Cambridge conference, he was rewarded with a profusion of advice and misadvice, uh, which he never was able to sort out. Uh, as a transplant of goals, subject matter now, and the like, the Vienna-London connection was profoundly significant, but as a basis for a method, it was very much a profound failure. At any event, out of this, I think we will have to see the, uh, the beginnings of modern music bibliography leading from Schenker to Hoboken to Deutsch over to London uh, to the great booksellers and uh, uh, bibliographers of today. Not to be overlooked finally was that circle of American sheet music collector who flourished through the early and on into the middle and now the late 20th century. This circle was actually somewhat larger than any of the social groups mentioned so far. It had a clear center named uh, a part-time dealer and sheet music addict named Harry Dichter. And the spokes extended to the collectors themselves. None of them curiously were musicians. Many of them, in fact, seemed scarcely able to read or interested in reading music at all. Uh, all of them, though, were passionately committed to it. 
Joseph Muller, Elliot Shapiro, uh, J. Francis Driscoll, Arthur Billings Hunt, Walter Harding, Lester Levy, and now uh, Jim Foe today, not to mention nearly a dozen less important collectors. What made the spokes moved uh, was a traveling trunk assembled by Dichter, its sequence set by him so that the best customers had first choice at stiff prices per item, the remainder sent on at a lower price, proceeding downward as the trunk was mailed around, I think by a railway express, proceeding down to a collector who shall be unnamed, who was in the anchor spot at two for a nickel. Uh, the earnest search for American history is what raised their efforts above that of the contemporary flea market. Uh, and in time, this led to the foundings of American music bibliography, the study of American music printing. The scholarship is laid forth in the book by Harry Dichter and Elliot Shapiro, Early American Sheet Music. Now, the erudition may not be all that pretentious, uh, uh, as benefits the subject matter itself, first editions of A Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight and the like. The scholarship does not uh, benefit from a heavy touch, but the basic tastes and techniques are present, a mixture of the awe and the romance of high spots, mentioned from some of the points that separate the sought-after copy from the one usually found, such as our, uh, all of these things are what one finds in, uh, suggested in early American sheet music. And if there's ever a time I wish I had had a tape recorder for oral history, on one occasion I had, occasion, uh, had the opportunity to introduce two great collectors. One was Lester Levy, uh, a great gentleman, uh, wonderfully skilled, uh, eloquent, uh, tasteful, respectful. The other one was Walter Harding, uh, old, tired, boorish, uh, unwashed, uh, uh, scaring collectors, scaring uh, scholars away. Uh, I was able to get Lester into Harding's home uh, and watching Lester perform on this occasion, and really that is, the, that is exactly what he did, looking through a collection of 19th century minstrel songs. Uh, what would have been important was to record the words that he went, he uh, executed and the way he did them as he looked over the copies. Hmm, I've never seen this one in blue before. Hmm, nice crisp paper. Uh, what's that doing there? Uh, comments like this, and by the time he was finished, uh, Harding was ready to give him the whole collection, tell him to take it away. Uh, but what's important is that quite unconsciously he was giving the kinds of things that analytical bibliographers spend hours trying to uncover. He was distinguishing things that he didn't know of. Uh, he was talking about things that we develop scholarly methods to, to investigate. If I've so far emphasized the collectors, uh, I don't mean to neglect librarians and academics. Rather, I want mostly to suggest that their contribution has been mostly less one of discovery and more one of systematization codification and presentation. The two giants among early 20th century librarians, for instance, Barclay Squire at the British Museum and Sonic at the Library of Congress, can take responsibility for the study of plate numbers on engraved music, a rich and problematical application of evidence, such as served contemporary historical studies as they served uh, earlier stock clerks. From the 1920s came another librarian, one by the impressive name of Kai Schmidt Fizzledeck, of the Danish Royal Library, 
whose confrontation with an 18th century manuscript collection gave music librarians their conception of con the uniform title. Uh, uh, it remains, though, an intellectual construction, nothing much to uh, uh, aspire the average collector. More recently, Alan Tyson, the Oxford polymath, who is himself also a collector, has assembled a solid scholarly argument which demonstrates through a complex thematic how some neglected English Beethoven editions actually contain a more authentic text than the celebrated earlier Viennese copies. Tyson has, uh, has the eyes of a collector, and while his involvement with composer's autograph studies now seems to have taken priority, I think we will be hearing from him in bibliography any day now. The fact remains, though, that scholars are so often specialized in such a way as would accommodate an overview of a theory of music bibliography. While librarians may not uh, be too unimaginative to theorize, at least they're too occupied with the problems of providing library service. They do have access to the materials uh, as they pass through their hands and before one own, one's own eyes if bibliographical studies are ever to be accomplished. And given the kinds of encouragement that a library school ought to provide, and such as I think does happen here at Columbia, I think in time that librarians might develop the enthusiasm and pa uh, passion of our best bibliophiles. Their gregarious habits are, of course, understood in a service-oriented profession like librarianship. And if ne the next round of budget cuts may preclude their ever becoming collectors on the side in their own right, their habits may bring about the next cycle of collectors who will lead music bibliography into the next century. The big problem is the need of time and uh, encouragement. Alfred North Whitehead makes a classic and useful differentiation between the stages in the educational process. First comes the stage of romance, then the stage of precision, and finally that of generalization. At first sight, our music bibliographers may appeal to be entirely on the level of the first stage of romance. Uh, in the history of scholars, there are indeed instances of the transition from the first to the second or the second to the third usually quiet events, but occasionally with some battle and fanfare. For instance, Mark Neely of the Lincoln Library in Fort Wayne uh, traces the landmark event in American, in, in, in modern Abraham Lincoln scholarship to a paper by James G. Randall in 1936. This event uh, was remarkably similar to what Whitehead has in mind, uh, romance being replaced by precision. The community of Lincoln collectors, headed by the likes of Ida Tarbell and uh, Carl Sandburg, had just been embarrassed by the Ann Rutler Lutledge forgeries. The time was now ripe for the enthusiasts, the bibliophiles, and the Lincoln libraries to clear out and leave the serious business to the pros. It may be thought that this is where music bibliography and bibliophily ought to be headed now. While I find Whitehead's model very useful, I must respectfully disagree insofar as I see the contributions of music collectors as desirably a continuing one. My various arguments are rather conjectural, instinctive, and hypothetical. First, as representative of the cause of generalization, our academics are, are too often preoccupied with their immediate and necessary goals, likely to be textual or contextual, to appreciate the opportunities of using their eyes. Our, our academics don't have the opportunity to really to, uh, they have the immediate goal that they must provide, 
They don't have the freedom of inquiry that a, a good collector uh, assumes. As for librarians, the tender loving care needed in processing material, the kind of work the, for which Inger Christensen of the New York Public or of old, uh, or Bernard Wilson of the Newberry Today, uh, they are likely to go the way of all scholarship if our libraries to continue their equation of cost accountability with the provision of the same kinds of service that's associated with small public libraries. Furthermore, if we assume that the music printer or publisher for Greek Bard diverse uh, and secretive, uh, uh, if we assume that this publisher produces works that are generally more competitive, then it should follow that their output is the more variable so that the Beethoven specialist would uh, only indirectly have insights that might address the Verdi or Mozart or Handel or Stravinsky specialist. Maybe there isn't a special area here altogether because it is too diverse. Above, and be, uh, uh, above all, though, we must assume that the sheer delight of scholarship in the presence of an active intellectual curiosity will sustain the progress of bibliography up to the time at least that centralized databases will render our whole conception of musical texts obsolete, an event that probably lies somewhere in the future. And even at this time, I think the music collectors may have something special to say. Uh, musicians understand how the text is transformed into the event. You don't simply read a book. Uh, you, you don't simply read music. You transform it into an event. That's what music is all about. And this phenomenon is what makes the idea of a dynamic database rather worrisome. The text becomes superfluous in a database. The thought is no longer needed for the action to involve T.S. Eliot. Uh, or to put it in Horatian terms, uh, uh, litera scripta monit and all that. If the musica scripted doesn't monit, there ain't no musica. Uh, which is a bad way to end a lecture, but uh, that's where I ended up, and uh, that's, that's enough for now, though. Thank you, Dave.